You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Josiah. If you have your Bible, kiddos, if you have a Bible, I see some of you reaching for Bibles. I see kids with Bibles and pens in hand, which is outstanding. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So if you want to make your way there in your Bible or in your Bible app uh, and read along, that would be great. If you're using one of those church Bibles, one of the ones under the seat, it's on 1006, if that's helpful to, to get you there. If you're using the Version app, you can find our event, and there's all kinds of scripture and extra stuff. You can take notes and do all sorts of things with that. Let's go ahead and start with the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God... I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and excuse me, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we As we look at your word, as we examine your word, Lord, let it examine us. Let it it pierce us to the heart. Let it move us. Let it stir us, God. We want to be conformed to your will and your mind, and we can't do that if we don't know your will and your mind. So help us to see. Give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. Give us a mind to understand, Lord, that we wouldn't be conformed to the confusion and chaos of the world we're in, but that we would be conformed to you and the kingdom you're bringing. Lord, help me to preach this well and straight and correct. Lord, help us to hear it as you would intend us to hear it. And then, Lord, help us to do it as you've called us to do it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does, how does the gospel inform how we live as Christians. We, we ask that question all the time. We say it, we say it kind of almost uh, unaware of what we're actually saying or asking. Have you ever tried to actually answer that question? How does, it, how does the gospel inform what we do and how we think and, and who we are? Now, uh, it's one thing to say, well, Christians, they do this, because the Bible says so, or they, they don't do that because that's what Christians do. Okay, that's what cultural Christianity does. We all conform to that culture, and it sort of creates the, the Christian norms. But it's entirely different. It's something altogether different to say, my thoughts and my actions on any particular topic and on any particular event are founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can we really say that? Do we know what that means? So in other words, (laughs) how does Jesus, his perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his forthcoming return shape how you think and how you respond to the things around you? How does it shape how you file your taxes? How does it inform who you marry? How does it influence what movies you watch, or how you vote, or where your kids are educated and how, or how you spend your money, or how you engage with the world? How does the gospel itself inform these things? 
I mean, submission to Jesus and obeying Jesus, that's the lordship. That's, that's what we're called to do. But how is obedience to God's word, obeying this revelation to us, related to the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's a hard question, isn't it? I mean, that's a really hard question. Uh, I was asking my kids that as we were driving in yesterday for the worship practice. It's a hard question. But I think it's the question. Paul has just spent 11 chapters, 11 chapters of this book, laying out what the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is and why it's important. And so now, in what we've just read, Paul is shifting gears to try to help us understand how the gospel transforms and and shapes every aspect of the life of the Christian. So what Paul gives us in what we read here, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's actually like the hinge on a door. Some of you have never taken the time to look at a hinge on a door. Others of you are dads who have to repair broken doors because you have teenagers and you just work on this stuff on a regular basis. A hinge on a door, any one of these doors works like this. There's basically uh, three parts. There's a plate that then has some, a fastener piece. Uh, and then there's another plate. Okay, one plate fastens to the frame. One plate fastens to the door. And then there's a door pin or a door nail that goes down between those two pieces and attaches them together so that they can function. And that's what makes the hinge. The plate or the piece that's attached to the frame is solid. It's attached to something unmovable. It's grounded and it's, it's anchored. Okay, that's what we've received in Romans 1 through 11. We've received the theology of the gospel that's solid and anchored and grounded. It's, it's unmovable. It's fixed. It anchors the Christian. Okay, and then what we find in, in Romans 12, 2 through 16, 27, the rest of the book after this, is the gospel in action. That's the moving part. That's the piece that, that hinges and moves and does stuff. That's our actions and our behavior. Solid part, moving part, right? But if we have the solid part unpinned to the moving part, every time we try to pull the door open, it just falls on our face and collapses on us. It falls apart. We have a big problem. We don't have a working hinge. We don't have something anchored to the solid part, and we don't have the moving part. It's the pin that allows these two pieces to function together. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 do. If we skip over that, we have two disconnected plates in our Christian life, don't we? And that's not helpful. The anchored solid part of Romans 1 through 11 grounds us. The other part is our action and movement. What we're looking at today connects the two. So, Romans 12.1 is Paul's urging, his plea, that we respond to the gospel and what he's just given us, that we would give ourselves over entirely to God in light of this gospel. And then Romans 12.2, the next verse is the encouragement about how we give ourselves over to God. We don't want to be wasting our lives on the wrong thing so that the last part is this instruction that helps train us up to understand what the Christian life in light of the gospel actually looks like. 
What does it look like to wholly, entirely give ourselves to God? My hope and the time that I have is to show you in the text, and then after we see it, I hope we see it, we'll then have a way to apply that to our lives today. That's the goal. So let's go ahead and take a look again at Romans 12.1. Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Daniel, my son, is learning to preach. It's very exciting. It's very fun. And I've taught him the value of the eye-rolling, dumb preacher jokes that are actually unforgettable and help people study the Bible better. This verse starts with a therefore. Most of you know where we're going, right? Every time we run across the therefore, we have to go back up and see what it's there for. Right? We have a therefore. It's referring to something, and in this case, Paul is referring to every single thing he's been saying, not just in the chapter, but all the way back to the very beginning of Romans. He's saying, therefore, all this, therefore, in light of Romans 1 through 11, therefore, based on everything I've been saying, this, what he's about to say. What he's about to say is based on the entirety of the whole gospel he's just presented. We know he's pointing all the way back. We know it's not, it's not just a guess. I'm not guessing at this. We know he's pointing all the way back to the beginning of the book of Romans, for sure, maybe more, because he says, in view of the mercies of God. He's not just saying, therefore, in light of what I just said. He's saying, in light of the mercies of God. Now, here's a real interesting observation worth noting. Mercies is plural. He did not say in view of the mercy of God. It's not just the mercy of your salvation. It's not just because God saved you, therefore you should give yourself to Jesus. I've heard that said a lot, and it's true. It's definitely true, but there's a whole lot more. It's plural. There's more to that. Paul urges us to give ourselves over to God in light of all of God's mercies. <clears throat> now, if he's only referring to the mercies in Romans, it could be God's mercy to open our eyes to show us the gospel instead of giving us over to a debased mind for those who are in sin. And we see that in Romans chapter 1. Or the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience that God intended for us to be led to repentance in Romans chapter 2, or God's freely justifying grace to all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and his standard, which then were given in Romans chapter 3. Or how about the undeserved blessing and righteousness and forgiveness to all who have faith in God? We read about that in Romans chapter 4. Or God loving his enemies. Us, the sinners, God loving his enemies by sending his one and only son to die for us, those enemies to God, while we were still his enemies and sinners. Romans chapter 5. I think you see where I'm going with this. I could go all the way up to chapter 12 with the mercies of God. But maybe it's more than just what's in the book of Romans. Maybe it's more. What about the mercy that God showed Adam and Eve? 
despite Adam and Eve disobeying God. He showed his mercy and he gave them clothing in Genesis 3.21. What about the mercy that God showed Noah in sparing him and his family in the flood, Genesis 6.8? What about God's mercy in providing Abraham and Sarah descendants even though they were extremely aged and far beyond childbearing age in Genesis 15.5? How about God's mercy in hearing the Israelites' cries and rescuing them in Egypt, when they were slaves in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, I could do this all day. We could definitely do this all day, but you'd all miss lunch and then dinner. I think you get the point. But let us not forget, still that mercy we went to at the very beginning, that God saved you and God saved me when we certainly did not deserve to be saved when there was nothing we could do to save ourselves, when we were his enemies, he saved us. He saved you and he saved me in his mercy. He saved you if you're his. In light of all that mercy, Paul is urging us, in light of, of, of all this mercy, we're going to do something. What is he urging us to do? Paul's urging us to, to present our bodies which here is a way of saying like all of us, our entirety, everything about us. He's saying give everything that you are, all of it, as a living sacrifice to God. Now the hard part about sacrifice, and especially living sacrifice today, is I don't think that jars us, I don't think that gets our attention. But make no mistake, Paul's original audience were certainly jarred by these two terms together. What a contradiction. That doesn't make any sense. Sacrifices... In this time, with the temple and the animals and the, whole, the priests and, and the blood and all of that, sacrifice in this time was not, oh, I had to miss a movie because I had to work. Guess I got to sacrifice. That's not the case for them. The Jewish people understood sacrifice. They had to bring this unblemished animal that they raised and they tended to, and it's got tremendous monetary value, and they had to bring it to be killed. They'd go into the temple with an animal, they'd come out without an animal. It was killed, and then it was consumed by the people, possibly the priests, possibly them, or if it couldn't be consumed, it's consumed by fire so that there's nothing left. And they had all these specific rules for the sacrifice of these animals that were killed, the blood that was shed. They understood sacrifice, and they go, oh, wait a minute, this is to pagans, this is to, to Gentiles, Romans, who were probably tied to a lot of pagan ritual. They also understood sacrifice. Rome in this day still had tremendous, numerous places and avenues and ways by which they sacrificed animals. And they celebrated in various ritualistic killing in the Colosseums and elsewhere in celebrating the sacrifice of even humans from time to time. They understood that sacrifice meant death. Sacrifice meant death. Death. However, Paul is specifically modifying the word sacrifice with the exact opposite of the word death, which is life, living. You will be a living sacrifice. That's a strange descriptor for a sacrifice. That is a strange adjective to attach to the word that actually means death. You can be a living sacrifice. Why would he do that? That's weird, right? That doesn't. Why would that be there? I found there are three possibilities. I think all of these possibilities 
can be correct and argued from various places in the Bible. I don't think they're wrong, but I, I think it's helpful to think through them. The first reason this could be a living sacrifice is that it could be that the, the sacrifice, which is the person, right, the us, person that God has saved, is supposed to remain alive as sort of evidence of a continual sacrifice, repeatedly giving him or herself over to God as a service to God, as a worship act of God. There's this idea of a continual sacrifice through life instead of it being a one-time event. There's a continual sense of worship there. Or a second option, it could be that, that while animals give up their physical bodies... Humans are the pinnacle of God's creation and quite different than animals. They have more than animals. They have personhood and they have aspects of of things that animals don't have. So instead it could be that if humans are to be sacrificed, God actually wants the humans to give up more than just their physical bodies and he wants to draw a contrast. He wants their time, their talent, their treasure, their affection, their thoughts even held captive. everything that's sort of intangible, and he wants that throughout the remainder of their physical life, and all of that is to God. That's another reason why he might have said, I want you to be a living sacrifice. That's an act of true worship. Or there's the possibility that I think I'm most inclined to, just by the way I study and read the Bible. Uh, I don't think any of these other two options are wrong at all, but I think in this particular section of Scripture, I, I think This third option is the right option based on Paul's argument and what is here in the book itself. Paul has has been arguing with this specific theme in Romans. He's introduced it to us. If you would, turn over to uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. If you're using that church Bible, it's on on 1001. Romans chapter 6. I just want to read this and hear this in light of what we're talking about here. This is verses 10 through uh, 13. Paul says, For the death he died, he's talking about Jesus, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all parts of yourself to God as weapons for righteousness. You hear that? And that's not the only place. Turn over to Romans 8, verses 12 through 13. Keep that thing in mind. Romans 8, verses 12. Through 13, keep that in mind. It says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You hear this strange contrasting language here. Now, with those two things in mind, let's just jump forward a couple more chapters and let's hear Romans 12 1 again. In view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Do you see that thread? There's this, there's this aspect of, of death and life. And somehow we were dead, but now we're alive. And somehow we're 
going to be a sacrifice, but instead of being dead, we're going to be alive. I think that's what Paul was getting at here in Romans 12. I I think he's talking about Christians and they live. I think he's, he's talking about something very different. We don't die. We've been raised from death. And even when we give ourselves to God, it's somehow in life and it's how we live, not die. What could you do to please God more, to be in God's will more than to believe in Jesus, to believe that he is who he says he is, and to surrender to him as Lord, thus becoming a regenerated, saved child of God, once dead in sin to our trespasses, but now alive in Christ. What what would bring him more joy? What would worship him better than us to be alive in Christ, worshiping him? If this is not you, if you haven't done this, if you're not alive in Christ, come chat with us, please, after the service. Say, I don't get at all what you're talking about, but I want to understand this thing. How is it that I go from being dead to being alive? It seems like I'm alive, and we'll show you that the Bible actually has a different picture here. How does this all fit together? How does it work? We want to talk to you about that. We'd love to chat with you about it. Don't hesitate. Let me know. Now, a different note here, shifting gears a little bit. Jesus' blood was shed for those he was saving. Right, And that's part of that sacrifice, the shedding of blood, and we see that on a repeated basis. Uh, the spilling of blood was used in the uh, sealing of covenants, and it was also used in the anointing of items and people to set them apart as holy. Okay, It's not the first place we see the shedding of blood. The cross is not suddenly where this comes into play. The Old Testament is loaded with this theme of the shedding of blood to be used as sealing of a covenant or making something holy. Moses put the blood of the sacrifices on the people, sometimes a lobe of ear, sometimes fling it on them, to set them apart as holy. And he also touched the instruments of the temple with the blood of the sacrifices to set them apart as holy. Being holy means to be set apart something entirely different. Now fast forward to Hebrews 9.14 in the New Testament that says that by Christ's blood we are saved and set apart to serve the Lord. We're set apart to be holy. Finally, in this verse, Paul says this is our true worship. This is our true worship in God is, is not something we get from God. We don't get something out of worship for us, from God. We should never say, man, I I really didn't get much out of worship today. Well, no kidding, you didn't get anything out of worship. It's not about you getting something. Worship is about us giving something to God, giving ourselves to Him, praising Him. Paul said, this is our true worship when we give to God. And God wants it all. He wants all of us, everything in, in its entirety. It's all for God. And when we don't hold anything back, that's our true worship. If we're holding something back and trying to worship God, it's kind of a lie. It's false worship. When you've given everything you are over to Him to worship Him and praise Him, it's true worship. So we're going to hear the verse. We're going to nod our heads. We're going to say, oh, yeah, I totally get that. That's great. That's fantastic. I just need to be a living sacrifice. I'm going to walk out of here. I'm going to do that. But then we actually have no idea how to do it, right? We're all nodding. We're all getting in our car. Then you go, I don't, okay. That's confusing. 
How do we do it if we don't even know what it looks like? What does a living sacrifice do? Well, I don't know. What, what does a living sacrifice think? How does a living sacrifice behave? Well, that's exactly where Paul goes next. So now if you're looking at your Bible, or kids, if your parents have fallen asleep, give them a good elbow and say, look. Look at verse 2. This is, what Paul's, this is where he's going now. He says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. The verse starts with a negative, don't be conformed to this age, and then it moves to and it instructs in the positive. It's saying here's the alternative of not being transformed to this age, but be transformed, transformed and conformed, very similar words, by the renewing of your mind. A statement like this takes us all the way back to the opening of Romans. Go back to Romans 1, 18 32. What is this renewing of the mind? What is this conformed to this world, transformed out of this world? If you go to Romans chapter 1 and look at 18 through 32, which I'm going to read for us. I know um, it's a long section of scripture, but I think it's helpful for us to hear this in this context. Romans 1, the beginning of the book which I believe Paul is referring to in chapter 12, says this. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, <clears throat> excuse me, as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women who were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. These people were dead 
in their trespasses and given over to a debased mind. They didn't see. They, they had struggles. They were sinners, but so were all of us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 say that we were sinners just like these. But in God's mercy, Jesus saved us, making us alive from the pool of death that we were swimming around in. Therefore, we need to allow God to renew our minds from the corruption that our minds were given over to in the stuff that we were in. We need to repent, which means turning from all of that and turning to God. Or how about this? We don't use the term as much, but we need to convert. Convert means to change one's mind. But we can't do the changing. It's not on us. God does it. That's what we're ready. God transforms the mind. He conforms the mind. So we need to give all of ourselves, every last bit of us, over to God. And then he says, if you give all of yourself to me, I'm going to transform your mind so that you're not conformed to this world. Now, here's the real challenge in our sinfulness. We still hold back a little from God, don't we? I just want to hang on to a little bit of that. I still want to have a little bit of this world, a little bit. I know it's not great, but that's just my thing. I know it's this. I just need this here. I'm just going to hold back something. God doesn't need me to give him that, does he? We know it's wrong, but we don't care. We just kind of hide it, right? We just make excuses. As long as nobody else knows, but yeah, but God knows. You know. We hide all of our sinful stuff. We don't go all in with Jesus because we fear what others are going to think. That's sin. And he still knows. And he's saying, if you just give it all to me, I will give you a life that is not transformed to the crud of this world. Just give it over to God. Paul is urging us to be living sacrifices, and that's our true worship. And then when we do that, we just let, we just let go of all of it, and then we're entirely transformed. Why is letting our minds be renewed by Jesus how we give ourselves over to God as a living sacrifice? Like, why that? Why, why the mind? Why not the heart? Why not... The various actions. Why does it start here with the mind? Well, the verse tells us. It's in the so that. In the Bible study tools class we were doing, we learned so that. Very important. It says, so that you may discern what is good. Excuse me, what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. How does knowing what the good and the pleasing and the perfect will of God cause us to be living sacrifices? How is that our true worship? Well, the implication is that we will do the good and the pleasing, and the perfect will of God. That we'll be living in that and not just wasting our time. We'll be living in and doing the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God instead of doing the bad, disgusting, and sinful will of the fallen world. It's one or the other. That or this. And God's saying, I'm I'm calling you. Paul's saying, do it. Go all in. I'm sure that this is the case. I'm sure that this is what Paul is arguing because in all of the rest of the book of Romans, right after this, is just chapter after chapter of passages that help us practice living in the will of God. It's the the flexible side of the hinge. It's the pieces that say, now in light of the mercies of God, now in light of the gospel, now live like this. Now do this. This is what it looks like to be conformed to the will of God, that you're doing these chapters. And the first section was, why? The big question for us is, are we really going to obey God's will in this? Or are we just going to remain in our sin? 
Are we going to be conformed to God's will? Are we going to remain conformed in the will of this world? Based on how these two verses act like the pan and the hinge, right? They allow this whole thing to work. I want to return to my original question. How does the gospel inform how we live as Christians? Here's how. We were once dead in our sin. Every single thought and every single action were conformed to this world. But God sent his one and only son to live a perfect life in our place, the one we failed to live, to die as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, to be raised from the grave as the first of the resurrection that we will one day enjoy, to ascend to sit at the right hand of the Father, to intercede for us right now for our every thought and our every action, and to one day return and rule his kingdom with perfect justice and righteousness. Romans 8, 18 through 30 speaks of Jesus redeeming and renewing all of creation for his glory. How does the gospel inform our actions? The redeeming and the renewal starts with those who believe in Christ. We are the beginning of his redemptive work in our salvation and in our giving ourselves over to him. We're being renewed day by day by what Jesus did, by the gospel. The mind is being transformed every time we're submitting to the Lord and every time we're repenting and every time we're finding his grace and his mercy fresh from day to day. Every time we say, man, I don't want to be conformed to this world. I want to be conformed to the will of God. We're giving him glory. We're saying he knows better than I know. That's worshiping him. He knows better than the world. That's worshiping him. He knows better than the society that says, well, you can't really say this and you can't really do that. And God says, you do what I say. That's worshiping him. That's giving ourselves over to him. Saying he knows best. He should be glorified. When you stop giving yourselves over to the world, you will be transformed, his word says. You will be conformed to him. He's redeeming this brokenness in us. And eventually that will spill out into everything else he redeems and everyone else. He reaches for salvation for his glory. That's how the gospel informs our thoughts. That's how the gospel informs our behavior. It is all for his glory because of what he did for us. For his glory, for his majesty, for his kingdom. Now, all this might not seem like a very easy thing to do. It might seem to you like if you go all in with God, the world won't give you up. You're going to have to do battle. That it's got its clutches in you. This might feel like, I can't do it. I can't be conformed to the will of God because the world's ways are too deep in me. But you don't have to fight the world. Jesus already fought the world and he already won. The victory is assured. All you got to do is give him your everything. Here's all my thoughts, all my actions. Here you go. Just take it all. Because I don't want any of that, and I want all of what you've got, and this is what he says is the way by which we get it. Jesus will renew your every thought. He will renew and transform your every desire. He will redeem your mind. He will redeem your heart so that you can enjoy Christ now as you're being transformed and redeemed, so that you can enjoy the fullness of how glorious he is in his kingdom to come. Give yourself all over. 
Give it to him. Let him do what he will. Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that your victory is won that there is a rescue from this crazy world and the rescue's not in all the stuff we think will fix everything in the here and now, but something that fixes it for eternity, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for redemption. Thank you, Lord, that you would redeem us even when we were your enemies, that we were sinners. Thank you that you would save us from the cesspool of our thoughts and our actions and our deeds. We just praise you in all of that, Lord. Thank you. God, thank you. Lord, we want to live all for you, but in our, in our sinfulness and in our brokenness, we hold stuff back. God, please just take it from us. Lord, give us the courage to just give it up, to confess it, to, to, to be honest about it, and then praise you for redeeming all of the broken places and all of the broken thoughts and all of our broken actions. Just equip us to live for you, for your glory. Lord, that we would be people who would worship you in truth, in true worship, in spirit and in truth. And Lord, as we respond to the next song, Lord, I just just ask that it would be true of our hearts and move us and compel us. We'd hold nothing back. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.